Don't be unnerved by this picture. Uh, this, uh, this represents a, a documentary entitled Supersize Me. And uh, it's a documentary about a young man named Morgan Spurlock. All my kids had to watch this documentary in school, and they came home utterly mortified. Uh, from February 1st, 2003, to March 2nd of 2003, Spurlock ate only McDonald's. For a period of one month, he ate McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And the documentary chronicles the impact of that particular diet on his weight, on his cholesterol, on his overall health. And needless to say, it was not a pretty picture. Each of us have been granted physical life, right? We, we don't create our bodies, but we have been given life and we have a responsibility to steward it, right? To take care of the life that we have been given, to take care of the bodies that we have been given. And uh, let's just say that eating McDonald's breakfast, lunch, and dinner would not be a good way to steward your life, to take care of your body, right? Of course, that's going to look a little bit different for each of us. Our bodies are not the same. We might uh, each experience some disabilities or um, predispositions or encounter certain adverse conditions in our life. So some might be gluten intolerant, right? Some might have a heart condition. Some might have poor eyesight, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, certain uh, cancers, uh, MS, Uh, certain things that cross our paths, right, that we have to encounter. Our metabolisms are all very different. Uh, But we each have uh, an assignment and a responsibility, uh, having been created by God, to uh, cultivate the life that we have been given, to utilize uh, what we have been given to the best of our abilities. Paul develops a principle like this in Philippians chapter 2, specifically as it relates to our spiritual life. So I want to just look at that one verse to begin, Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as, uh, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with faith, with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So uh, we use this type of terminology, working out, uh, mostly to describe physical fitness and exercise, but of course the phrase can be used in a variety of different contexts. Uh, we might speak of um, needing to work out the plans for the upcoming banquet. You know, I've got all this stuff that's going to be happening, and somehow I've got to kind of move us from point A uh, to a completed product. Uh, We might say we need to work out a story problem, right? Here it is, and we need to see it through to completion. It's really what the concept here means, uh, carrying something out or working it to full completion, 
In the ancient world, uh, it would be used in other ways as well, to work a mine or to work out a mine. So you're, you're, you're trying to harvest ore or some precious mineral right out of the mine and you want to, to complete that process and extract out of the mine all of those precious elements. Or we might work a field uh, to get the greatest possible harvest. So uh, th- this, is the, this is the concept that's sort of in the backdrop. And Paul here says he wants us to work out our salvation. Now Paul had already given an overarching instruction uh, here at, um, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, I really suggested to you that th- this is Paul's first imperative command in the letter. And I think it's really kind of the overarching command. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Or the ESV says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, so in other words, you've, you've been saved uh, by God's grace. Now live like it, right? Live out that new reality. And... Uh, Paul has gone through to talk about what that means, and then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he pointed them to Christ. This is what it would look like. Christ is the consummate example uh, of what it is to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And so as we come to chapter 2, verse 12, Paul is circling back to this concept again. I'm He's saying the same thing in a different way. He's using uh, a different analogy. God has worked in salvation into us. He's granted us salvation, and we are now being called to work it out, to work it to completion. And uh, really a a vivid uh, concept here. Uh, We don't work for our salvation, but we are called on to work out our salvation. So we might see salvation and work in the same sentence and red flags are going up for us, right? We don't work for our salvation, but we do work out our salvation. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, but we're responsible to take what we've been given and work it, cultivate it. I have grapevines. Some of you have seen my grapevines. I didn't create the grapevines, right? They uh, were transplanted, and, but I did have a responsibility to cultivate the grapevines. And there's all sorts of little things that, um, you know, there's certain, the Japanese beetles really like to eat the leaves of the grapevines, and uh, the raccoons really love the grapevines. They don't like the skins. They just like the grapes, the inside, and they leave the skins behind. The, the mark of the raccoon, right? So uh, all of these things, if you're going to see this brought through to a harvest, then there's a lot of work to be done. So again, the distinction there of, of not creating, we don't create the grapevines. We don't Uh, bring about our own spiritual life. It's been granted to us. Here it is. But there is a certain responsibility that comes with cultivating it, with tending it, getting the most out of the life that we have been given, the spiritual life that we have been given. 
We need to make sure we're thinking clearly about salvation as well. Um, There is an aspect of salvation that is an accomplished work, that is a done deal. Uh, We tend to refer to it as justification. It's the fact that we've been granted a new status, a new standing before God. Our sins have been forgiven through Christ. His righteousness has been credited to our account. Uh, we now are no longer under condemnation. So, so that's an accomplished fact. Uh, but the Scriptures also speak of other aspects of our salvation, sanctification, the unfolding aspect of becoming increasingly conformed to Christ. Um, where, again, we're working out that salvation, and that's what Paul is talking about here. So here's my, uh, my, my thesis, my big idea that I think summarizes this, this text. Spiritual fitness requires persistent and intentional effort to reach spiritual maturity, to be spiritually fruitful, to sort of achieve the end for which we have been saved, requires some measure of effort on our part, some measure of cultivation of our spiritual life. Uh, the text uh, then goes on again to develop this idea. So I want I'm putting this forward as the, 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 the big idea, and I want to just sort of think about some of the different aspects of it here as Paul gives the instruction. Uh, one of the things I want us to think about is what I'm calling the spirit of the command. Paul sort of frames it here and really answers the question, what is the mindset uh, that we have as we work out our salvation? Uh, let's consider what Paul says here. Uh, when we think about working out our salvation, it is a response to Christ's great love. Remember the context Uh, Context is important, right? So the first 11 verses in Philippians chapter 2 unpack the work of Christ on our behalf. He uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held to tenaciously, but he was willing to humble himself and take on human flesh uh, and uh, humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So... This is what Christ has done for us. He's demonstrated his great love. And so here in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, therefore, in light of what Christ has done for you and for me, uh, let's work out our salvation. Let's respond appropriately. So Paul's not calling them to some stoic duty He's calling them to an appropriate response to God's extravagant grace. Right? That's important. That frames it for us. Working out our salvation is a matter of obedience. This is another key word here. Uh, let me go back again to read to 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. So, obedience. As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Continue to obey. Continue to work out your 
salvation. So obedience is part of what's being discussed here. And this too is a key term in the context. Uh, We read back in chapter 2, verse 9, that Christ was obedient even to the point of death. Do you remember that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, where Jesus knew what was coming? He knew that crucifixion was around the corner, and he prays to God in in his full humanity, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's sweating drops of blood under incredible pressure, unthinkable pressure. And yet he commits to doing the will of the Father. And so now Paul says to them, you've been given to obedience and I want you to now continue. You've obeyed when I was with you uh, in those early days when the church was being established, but now I'm absent from you and I'm urging you to continue to obey. Now you're experiencing some difficulties, some struggle, some opposition, some persecution. Continue to work out, continue to obey, even in my absence. Again, this is uh, an authority word. It speaks of submission and conformity to a higher authority. Uh, We're not real big on that, generally speaking. Obedience doesn't rank super high. We, We have issues with authority in general, uh, just because for most of us it kind of is our birthright as Americans, and and uh, that's just getting more pronounced. And, and but we're called to obedience. Jesus is not only our Savior, but He is our King. And so uh, Paul is calling them to get in line with the commands of Christ. So there's a, there's a heaviness there that is brought to bear. This is part of the spirit of what he's asking them to do. Uh, we also get a sense that it is a serious matter. It is to be done with fear and trembling. Uh, this doesn't mean we live in a constant state of anxiety and terror, but Almighty God has saved us by his grace. Almighty God, the King of the universe, <laughs> has sent his own Son paid a tremendous price for our salvation. And that calls for an appropriate response. One translation says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Paul has already described our relationship with God as that of children with a father. He's going to unpack that here in this very text. A child doesn't act in a certain way to earn acceptance in the family, but a child is called upon to act in a certain way because they're part of that family. We've been made children of God. That, that's an awesome privilege, and it comes with an awesome responsibility that we don't misrepresent God, that we don't somehow defame his name I think this is all part of what's happening here when he talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, with a certain amount of seriousness and sobriety. Paul also uh, is very clear that this is an attainable call. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. So God is at work. And and the way this is phrased here, both to will and to work, in other words, God is not just sort of... um, is not just working at the level of our actions. He's working at the level of our will, of our hearts, that God is, is at work to not just change our behaviors, but our orientation. He's doing the work from the inside out. So our work is premised on God's work behind the scenes. I remember when uh, my kids were young, working on the dryer at our house on Ada Drive, and I dropped a pair of pliers behind the dryer. And I suppose I could have moved the dryer to get the pliers, but instead I took my four-year-old by the ankles and instructed them to grab the pliers, right? So they were doing something. They were actually doing something that was very helpful. It was real work. But, of course, it was very much premised on my work, right? Might seem a little sacrilegious to think about God holding us by our ankles, but the reality is that our work is premised on God's work, and that ought to be very comforting. Right? That, that means I can do what he's asking me to do. <laughs> Otherwise, we read a text like this, work out your salvation, and it can seem very overwhelming. But God is already committed to this task. He is doing it. He's accomplishing it. He's changing my heart. <laughs> he's bringing me under conviction of sin. It might not always seem like it on the surface. It might seem like one step forward and two steps back. <laughs> but God is at work, and we can be very much encouraged by that. Paul wants these believers to be encouraged by that. We should also note here that it's a corporate responsibility. Again, we miss this just because of the limitations of the English language. We don't pick up on the plural you, but Paul is telling them you all work out your salvation. That This idea of of, uh, sanctification is not a solo pursuit. It's not just about you confronting your issues. It's about you helping me confront our issues. <laughs> and so uh, th- there's a corporate element to this that we have to embrace and understand. God's goal is not for you to come to maturity. Uh, God's goal is for us to come to maturity. And that involves uh, a collective effort. So all of these things just sort of frame the, the, the task. They give kind of the spirit of the command. Paul also delves into the specifics, uh, particularly here in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And here, I think uh, Paul answers the question, what does it look like to work out our salvation? What, practically speaking, what are we talking about here? And he gives very specific instruction. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Paul had already called them to a life of love. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 27, he had again pointed them to Christ and his example of selfless service. 
But working out one's salvation requires us to get into the nitty-gritty. I actually have to start identifying uh, specific behaviors. I have to start examining my speech patterns. <laughs> right? This is the working out. We can talk generally about a life of love. Okay? But now I have to start talking about my life and my lifestyle and my characteristics and my attitudes. And so Paul is driving at some specifics here. He highlights two, grumbling and disputing, qualities that must be rooted out of the Christian life. Do everything without grumbling. Uh, this refers to behind-the-scenes talk, complaining, uh, expression of displeasure, grumbling, whining, belly aching. The list of descriptions could go on. It's sort of this muttering or uh, complaining under our breath. It's, it's, it's muted. It's not overt, but it's a muted expression of rebellion and discontent. The root word here actually has to do with lodging or dwelling. And the idea is that grumblers are those who sort of camp out or fixate on the negative. Uh, clearly, Paul has in mind the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness when he uses this particular terminology. And we can think about that context, right? They, uh, they grumbled when... They found themselves up against the Red Sea and the Egyptians were behind them. You know, why did Moses lead us into this predicament? You know, this was not very smart. Uh, they grumbled when they found themselves at Mara. The water there was bitter. They were frustrated by that. Uh, it was not good drinking water. Uh, they grumbled when they were hungry. They grumbled when they were thirsty. Their grumbling was uh, seemingly directed at Moses and Aaron. It was directed at Moses and Aaron, but of course, ultimately, it was directed to God. It was a, a spirit of discontent. And they became entrenched in this really twisted view of reality. I mean, we, we can look at that and, and, and just think, you know, what God had done for them. I mean, they, he, he led them out of slavery in Egypt. And in addition to that, they actually plundered the Egyptians. They took much of the wealth of Egypt with them. And they saw Pharaoh and his armies destroyed in the Red Sea. And yet in such a short time, they are choosing to focus on their difficulties. They have concluded that they are victims, that they are somehow being mistreated. I mean, this is just a complete distortion of reality. And Paul is seemingly concerned that the same could be true for the Philippians. I mean, they too were saved by God's grace, delivered out of slavery. But now they've encountered some difficulties, and he's concerned that they could lose sight, lose perspective of what they have in Christ we too, right? For honest, can very easily lose perspective of God's grace. 
So he's calling them to root out this spirit of discontent and ingratitude that can easily creep in to our lives. So do everything without grumbling, do everything without disputing. This refers to verbal exchanges that take place in the midst of conflict. This is petty disputes, bickering. Uh, The first term, grumbling, describes some measure of sort of internal discontent, whereas disputing now is the next level of sort of open frustration, irritation, anger, And, of course, ultimately these things breed disunity. They certainly do not reflect a spirit of love and humility. And so if you're going to work out your salvation, if you're going to really kind of take the spiritual life that you've been given and and work it through to completion, uh, we're going to have to deal with things like this. You're going to have to address speech patterns. I think the real key here is remembering what we have in Christ. Uh, If you look at the text here, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then if you just kind of fast forward down to verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. I think that's a a huge key here of of what Paul's connecting here. We have been given new life in Christ, the gospel of salvation, uh, and we, we, we must hold fast to it in the midst of the difficulties and challenges of life. Uh, we had some frustrating moments on our trip to Israel, as I alluded to. Uh, we, um, we were leaving Newark. As a matter of fact, our flight took off from Newark to Tel Aviv, and we were about an hour and a half into the flight when the pilot came on and said, you know, we're trying to track down some mechanical things. We are going to turn back and land in Newark. Ugh. I have to admit there was some grumbling going on in my row. I turned to Sherry and said, what did he just say? <laughs> now, I could have thought, wow, thankfully God protected us from a mechanical problem. But that wasn't where my mind was going right then, Right? So we can quickly, you know, we're living in a, in a time when there's a lot of things to complain about. Can we just be honest about that? <laughs> and there's a lot of complaining. <laughs> but we are called here to root these things out, to embody a spirit of grace and gratitude and humility and uh, Paul is, is saying this is the real nitty-gritty work of working out your salvation. So those are the specifics. And then he gets into the significance. Uh, why is the outcome, uh, or rather, what is the outcome when we work out our salvation? What is really at stake here? Uh, what is Paul hoping to achieve by urging them to work out their salvation. He gets to this in verse 15. Um, That, or so that, let's just pick up in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that or so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine 
as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul gives very clear reasons of why they need to work out their salvation and put aside grumbling and disputing. Lives of gratitude and grace reflect the glory of our Father and serve as a beacon in a dark world. Our lives should validate and affirm the message of the gospel. He wants us to be blameless, right, where no one can can level an accusation against us. He wants us to live as God's children, to live distinctly, where people see God and his grace in us. He wants them to be bright lights, right, stars that shine brightly in the dark night sky. He wants us to live distinctly where people can recognize us as God's children, as God's people. And our behavior is particularly important because we are God's representatives. Again, he goes on to say here in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life or holding forth the word of life. We've been given a charge, a commission to take the gospel to the world. And so we need to to live in a way that is consistent with our calling. We should not do anything that would distract from or discredit the gospel. Our lives and our message go hand in hand. They're both important. Our lifestyle impacts our witness. The stakes are high. So Paul has in view what, what the outcome is, why this is so important so that we can have an effective witness in the world. Sometimes we just have to recognize it's not about me, (laughs) right? I've been taken advantage of or I've been misrepresented. It's not about me. At the end of the day, it's about the gospel. (laughs) If I have to suffer for the gospel to be advanced, swallow hard (laughs) and embrace it. Right? This, this is the call that we've been given. And sometimes we allow some of our own petty agendas. We want to win this little battle. And in doing so, we lose the war. Right? We get my point across on social media. But my neighbor will never talk to me again about Christ. You know, I mean, what are we doing here? Right? So this is the the significance of this and why it's so important. And, you know, I mentioned the authority issues a little earlier. We are living in a society that has a growing distrust of authority and institutions. We think of it maybe particularly with government. There's a low trust in government, right? But, but that just has trickle-down effects. Pew Research did a study a couple of years ago just talking about the impact of that on the church. People are skeptical about Christians. They're skeptical about Christianity. They're skeptical about Christian leaders. This is the, the, the mix in which we're serving right now, and there's generational dynamics to that. Young adults are much more pessimistic and distrustful. If we are going to effectively engage this generation with the gospel, we need to up our game. We need to give consideration to both our message and our behavior, our attitudes. 
finally, the sacrifice. It looks like I have the wrong reference here. This is chapter 2 now, verses 17 through 18. Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Why does working out my salvation produce joy? How should I think about this whole endeavor? Sanctification is not easy. Working out our salvation is not easy. It's painstaking. Uh, having to surrender my selfish ambitions, having to acknowledge my selfish agendas can be very painful. Loving others, serving others is hard work. But notice how Paul thinks about his service for Christ. He thinks of it as an offering to God. Uh, matter of fact, he says the, the, these believers in Philippi, their faith is the offering on the altar And Paul's work is like a drink offering that's poured out. Oftentimes in the ancient world, there'd be a a sacrifice offered, and then after sin had been atoned for, then they would pour this this drink offering and and the hot coals. And and once sin has been taken care of, then you can offer an offering of praise and gratitude. But Paul just has this image in his mind of what he's doing is an offering to God. A critical mindset if we're going to serve others well. That at the end of the day, we recognize I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for God. Um, we find joy in our service because it constitutes an act of worship. Uh, my son Noah and his soccer team uh, at Forest Hill Central uh, beat Northview in the district finals this past fall. They had gotten beat pretty soundly by Northview earlier in the year, so it was a, it was a big win. And Northview has a, a, a really standout player that's going to be playing at Ferris State or Central Michigan or one of these D1 schools, and um, he was the guy we had to stop, and Noah drew the assignment uh, to, 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 to guard this kid and played really well, played, played the best game of his, of his season. Didn't score any goals but, uh, in that game, but... Um, really held that guy in check, did a, did a great job. It was an interesting scene at the end of that game. Um, all of Noah's teammates were down at one end celebrating, and Noah kind of kneeled down next to this guy who's kind of laying there on the field, devastated that his season was over, and Noah just sat down next to him and kind of patted him on the shoulder Probably most people in the stands that night didn't notice it, but Dad notices these things, right? We see these things in the lives of our kids. Um, It was a proud moment. But my point is that our Heavenly Father sees these things. That act of service that maybe is not recognized by others, right? Right? When you try to do something to serve and it's spurned, it's misunderstood, it's rejected, whatever it is, you know, God sees these things. Jesus references this in the Sermon on the Mount, that the things you do privately, the God who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. And Paul has this great vision here that God is the one who he is seeking to please 
And this brings him a spirit of joy in his service. He's offering it up as an offering to God. Spiritual fitness requires persistent and intentional effort. We are called to work out our salvation to completion. And so I ask you as we draw to a close here this morning, have you... Have you received God's salvation? We talk about working out your salvation, but that assumes that that salvation has been worked into you, that you've responded to God's gracious offer of salvation. I don't want to assume that today. Uh, Salvation is a great gift. It's something that captures our hearts and motivates our lives and gives us hope for the future Uh, But in our natural state, we're separated from God. We are uh, under his judgment because of our sin. And so I ask you, have you taken that step of recognizing your sin and turning from it and turning to Christ and embracing and receiving the offer of salvation? If salvation has been worked into your life, are you working out your salvation? Are you giving intentional thought? People embrace all sorts of different plans, right? Diet plans to lose a certain amount of weight or a, a educational plan so that you can progress in your vocation or a financial plan so that you can save money or a fitness plan so you can run a marathon. Uh, these things don't just happen automatically, right? We don't progress in these areas just automatically. And we don't progress spiritually automatically either. What are you doing to prioritize uh, the reading and meditation of God's Word, to continue to orient your lives around what is true? Have you given thought to what specific lifestyle things need to change? We're talking nitty-gritty, right? We're talking grumbling and disputing speech patterns. These are the things we talk about working out our salvation that now come into view. What disciplines do you need to adopt? What self-examination do you need to undertake? And my prayer is that we will collectively work out our salvation so that we can be increasingly effective as messengers of the gospel, the light of the gospel in this dark world.